It can be easy for us to look for satisfaction in temporary things, but in truth, true joy comes only from Jesus himself. Todd Nettleton has been reminded of this truth many times as he's met with Christians who have been persecuted for their faith. It's like, hey, wait, I'm here to talk about the time you were in prison. I'm here to talk about the time you were beaten. And they're like, yeah, that's just a small thing. Let's talk about how many people have come to faith in Christ. Jesus never promised his followers an easy path. In fact, he told his disciples that the world would hate them. He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of his followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help, right now on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. No, I'm definitely not Todd Nettleton. I'm Janet Parshall, host of In the Market, heard on Moody Radio. And today, I'm sitting in as host because Todd is going to be interviewed. He's written a brand new book called When Faith is Forbidden, 40 Days on the Front Lines with Persecuted Christians. It is an absolutely riveting book that tells you the story of people who've said, Yes, Lord. When we say yes in the West, we don't understand that that might come with signing our own death sentence. But for our brothers and sisters globally, saying yes, Lord just might cost them everything, including their life. Todd and I talked about his new book on my program, In the Market, and we're going to hear some of that conversation this week on VOM Radio. Perhaps you listen to Todd every week, but you might not know about his growing up years. Todd is an MK. For those of you who don't know, that means a missionary kid. So, Todd, where did you grow up? My initial years were in Southern California, so I I got very comfortable with Southern California life. And then when I was 12, uh, our family packed up and moved to Papua New Guinea. My mom and my dad and my brother and I, and then my other brother, my youngest brother, was actually born once we got there, born in Papua New Guinea. And so we served four years in Papua New Guinea and uh, really life-changing experience. In fact, uh, when people ask me, you know, how did you start working at Voice of the Martyrs? Uh, I tend to start the story with, well, in 1982, our family moved to Papua New Guinea when I was 12 years old, because that really set my eyes on what God was doing around the world. It gave me a love for getting on an airplane and going someplace I've never been before. Uh, It gave me a love for people who don't look like me and don't talk the same language as I do. And so that really is, is what started me on the path towards VOM. We served there for four years. When we came home, I was 16, and I finished high school and went off to college. Uh, And then my parents subsequently served in Guyana in South America. They served in Liberia and Sierra Leone in West Africa. Uh, And most recently, they served in the Czech Republic. And so they have served in a lot of different environments, a lot of different job descriptions. But that sort of worldwide kingdom service is a part of my DNA, and it's a part of my DNA that I'm very proud of. Wow. So, Todd, when you start out life in Southern California and you move as a preteen to New Guinea, which is a very challenging place to live, that's probably the best adjective I can pull, you could have gone one of two ways. You could have said, forget this missionary stuff, I'm done with it. Or you did the other choice, which was, I want to be a part of Voice of the Martyrs. So when you saw this excitement of being able to travel, when you saw Christians in another world, why is it, do you think, that God began to plant in your heart a desire to now see the persecuted church? Your mom and dad as missionaries wanted to bring the gospel message. But VOM is about what happens once that gospel message takes up residency and people end up paying a price. You know, I think moving to Papua New Guinea was was 
brutally hard for me. I, I want to be very honest with that. It was it was not a smooth transition for me. And even when we came home four years later, that was not a smooth transition. So there was a lot of sort of challenges that went along with that. But the thing that, that sort of stuck with me is God is doing some things outside of the borders of America that are amazing. And I want to be a part of that. I want to see that. I want to tell those stories. Uh, and so I think that is what drew me. And, you know, I never felt called to be what I would call a missionary. I never felt called to go and live in another culture, live in another country. Uh, in fact, I would have said, you know, I, I'm not sure I want to do that. Uh, but the chance to to live in America but still sort of have one foot in what God is doing around the world— that fits me absolutely perfectly. And, you know, I've just come to see that that what I'm doing now is what God created me to do. And it's so obvious that you love serving him in this capacity. Todd's brand new book is called When Faith is Forbidden, 40 Days on the Front Lines with Persecuted Christians. And it's a wake-up call for the church. It's a travelogue. It's a prayer journal. It's so many things. And I'm so privileged to be able to spend this time with Todd. So, Todd, I want to go back to October 19th, 1998, your very first trip for VO and you're going to Sudan, you're going to distribute food and Bibles. What impressions, and I know there had to have been many, what impressions do you still carry with you about that trip to this day? You know, one of the frustrating things about that trip, and I talk about this in the book, is nothing went according to our plan. <laughs> like, like we had this whole trip planned out, and we were going specifically to replace some Bibles. The, a team before us had been to this village. They had delivered Bibles. When they got there, the pastor of the church, a man named Abraham, he had the only Bible for his whole congregation. And, and so they brought boxes of Bibles, and the people were just so overwhelmed with joy. Wait a minute. You mean each of us can have our own copy of the Bible? How, wow, this is amazing. Well, two or three days later, Mujahideen came in, they attacked the church. They burned all the Bibles. They actually shot and killed Pastor Abraham. And so our team was going, and we said, hey, they burned all those Bibles. We're going to go back, and we're going to replace every single one of them, and we're going to leave more this time. We're going we're to not let you know the enemy win a victory in this battle. And yet, when we got to Sudan— nothing went according to our plan. We we couldn't land where we wanted to land because there was too much rain and the, the airstrip was muddy. We had a truck that got washed down a river, and it seemed like every single thing didn't go how we planned it to go, which when you travel internationally, you sort of have to be ready for that because the, there have been other trips like that as well, unfortunately. But through that, it was kind of a way of, I think, maybe God getting me ready for the next 20 years at VOM is just saying, listen, I have a plan and it's bigger than your plan. And so you need to be ready and willing to set aside whatever your plan is, because my plan is bigger, it's more powerful, it's better. And so just just sort of understand that I'm going to accomplish my plan and you need to come along with me. Don't don't fight against it because my plans will be accomplished. And uh, we don't know all the good that came of that trip. We probably won't know till we get to heaven. Uh, but I trust that God faithfully used what we did do, uh, even though it seemed like everywhere we went, we ran into a brick wall. Wow, amazing. And it really goes to the life lesson that you said was such a big takeaway, which is life is out of your control. 
And that's an important lesson for every one of us, whether we serve uh, in the Lord in an oppressed country or whether or not we have the liberties we enjoy here in the United States. You know, if I could ask you at that age, back in 1998, if I could ask you to be that person now, and I were to say to you, how bad do you think Christian persecution is? What do you think you would have answered in 1998 versus now in the 21st century? You know, I think one of the things that I have been privileged to learn uh, is about the faithfulness of God in spite of persecution. And so 1998, when I first came to work at VOM, uh, I think I would have seen persecution very much as kind of a human rights issue. Like, hey, this is terrible. We need to put a stop to this. And yes, we do need to speak out on behalf of persecuted Christians. But as I have had the privilege to go and sit down and drink tea and hear their stories, what often happens is they have a huge smile on their face, they have an incredible sense of joy that is absolutely contagious, and all they want to talk about is how faithful God is and how the ministry is growing and people are coming to faith in Christ. And you kind of want—it's like, hey, wait, I'm here to talk about the time you were in prison. I'm here to talk about the time you were beaten. And they're like, yeah, that's just a small thing. Let's talk about how many people have come to faith in Christ. That's their attitude. And so I think— you know, in those 20 plus years, I think that's probably the biggest thing I've learned is that, let, you know, our circumstances will change and sometimes our circumstances will be horrible, but God is even able to work in the midst of horrible circumstances to bring about his plan, to bring about his will. And so one of the things I try to do now that I would have never tried to do in 1998 is, is in a bad circumstance, say, okay, Lord, what what are you trying to teach me? Who who are you putting in my pathway here that that you want me to talk to? Because my 1998 prayer would certainly have been, Lord, get me out of this horrible circumstance. There's no way this is good for me. So hopefully I've learned a little bit more perspective in the years since then. Here in the West, however, we tend to have the exact opposite position, which is we know Scripture says that when those fiery trials come, not if— we act surprised. We're put off. We feel that God's abandoned us. We don't understand that it is part of, if I can borrow from C.S. Lewis, the whole package. Does it discourage you to hear our brothers and sisters who just expect this to be a part of their relationship with the Lord and then come back to the States when people are in a state of shock and awe when bigotry, discrimination, which precedes persecution, uh, takes place in this country and we tend to become faint-hearted and step back? You know, I wouldn't say that it discourages me necessarily, but I would certainly say that it means that we have work to do here at VOM. We there's there's a great audience for this book, and I think you know a part of it is how we come to faith. A lot of people in America hear the gospel message as, "Hey, I want you to come to Jesus because He is going to make your life better. You're you know things are going to get better for you. You're going to have more money. You're going to have a nicer car. You're going to get a better job." And so we come to Jesus, and then when hardship comes, we're like, wait a minute, I thought things were going to get better. What, what's going on? How could there be hardship? The opposite is true in restricted nations. They come to faith knowing there will be hardship, and so they're not thrown off course by it quite as much as we can be. This is the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. I'm Janet Parshall. In the interviewer role today, Todd Nettleton usually gets to ask the questions, but today I'm asking him about his brand new book, When Faith is Forbidden. 
So many stories, Todd, in the 40 days. You do a wonderful job of literally letting us travel with you. You share part of your travel journey with us so we can experience what it's like to literally travel for VOM and to meet our brothers and sisters. Talk to me about a Pastor Ragamoff who was asked to give a sermon at a funeral. Uh, I love this story from Central Asia. Uh, He came into a village where he was trying to do some evangelistic work, and as he came into town, uh, they were getting ready to start a funeral. And so he went up to the mullahs who were going to lead the funeral, and he said, well, what happened to this man who has died? What happened to him after he died? And the mullahs kind of looked at him like, well, that's a weird question, but we don't know. We don't know what happened to him. And he, he challenged him. He said, well, if you don't know what happened to him, why are you preaching the funeral? Why are you going to talk at the funeral if you don't know? And they kind of said, okay, smart Alec, y- you do the funeral. And for Pastor Rajmov, he's like, great, I'm ready, let's go. And so he stood up at the funeral and was able to present the gospel, was able to talk about we can know what's going to happen to us after we die. The way that that can happen is if we choose to follow Jesus Christ. And so he turned that funeral into an evangelistic opportunity to say, hey, there is a way you can know what's going to happen after you die. It reminds me of a pastor I I met in China who said, you know, I love to speak at funerals because typically the government won't interfere with a funeral. They, They might interfere with a church service, but they have a little more respect for a funeral. So you can get away with a little more as far as your preaching. So just, you know, another story of, of how God uses people who are ready in every situation. And the Bible says, you know, in season and out of season, they are ready to use every opportunity in every situation as a chance to share the gospel. Todd, when you know that you're going to represent VOM and travel to some country on the globe, are there countries that you long to go to and others that you have a sense of, oh, anything but here? <laughs> uh I, I don't ever have a sense of anything but here. There are certainly some countries that I have grown to love. Uh, I love the country of Turkey. Uh, I love the city of Istanbul. I love the chance to visit there. When I was in Nepal, I thought Nepal was probably the most beautiful country that not only existed but could ever exist. It was just so spectacular with the mountains and everything. Uh, and I love people in, in a lot of different places. I think particularly of the people of Eritrea, which I had the chance to go to. I've actually been uh, called some nasty names by the Eritrean government because I went there. But uh, the people of Eritrea were so warm and so sweet to welcome us and and so soft-hearted towards us. And as I think of you know, some of the people that I met in Eritrea have been in jail now for more than 15 years because they are Christians, because they are followers of Jesus Christ. And jail in Eritrea can mean a metal shipping container that you're held in. Uh, It can mean an underground prison cell where you don't see the sun for months at a time. When I think of those brothers in Eritrea who have suffered for so long, uh, I left a part of my heart in Eritrea. And so uh, it's easy for me to picture them. It's easy for me to picture that place. But, you know, I think as you travel with an open spirit, you can find a thing to love about just about every place. Mm. I know that the Lord must talk to you very often in your prayer life. And are there times when you're back stateside, when you've seen our brothers and sisters, for example, you just talked about Eritrea. Does God bring back, not, not a drop, but a flood of prayer requests for you personally, Todd, because of what you've seen and where you've traveled? You know, it, it 
it does bring a depth to my prayer. My heart has been heavy for Pastor Wang Yi in China, who I I have not met. I have not interviewed him, uh, but having interviewed other former prisoners in China and having an understanding of some of the pressure that he is likely facing while serving a nine-year prison sentence. Somehow, some stories just sort of capture your heart, and that story has captured mine. I mentioned uh, my brothers who are in prison in Eritrea, and I held some of their babies when I was there, and they have grown up without a father because their dad's been in prison for 15 years. And I, that weighs on me. That It weighs on me to know that. We're talking to Todd Nettleton, who's been with Voice of the Martyrs for decades, what he's seen, what he's heard. I'm so grateful that he comes back and he tells us this westernized, Americanized Christianity that really doesn't have a concept of what it means to go to prison in a metal shipping container for 15 years because you said, yes, Lord. Todd's got a brand new book that is required reading in my classroom. It's called When Faith is Forbidden, 40 Days on the Front Lines with Persecuted Christians. Todd, again, is Director of Media Development for Voice of the Martyrs and hosts an absolutely spectacular radio show. So, Todd, I want to talk about going to Bangladesh, because particularly when you go to countries where there are what we call blasphemy laws, that you are not allowed to, quote, convert someone, you're going, you're listening to people who have already said yes to Jesus. Their very lives stand in stark opposition to the laws that are so nefarious and really uh, just boundlessly uh, discriminatory in their basis. You went to Bangladesh. You met with a man named Hassam. Talk to me about what it was like for him to be able to recognize that even the Quran talks about Jesus. Well, one of the things that often happens as I meet with persecuted Christians is I feel very humbled <laughs> about my ministry and my life. Hassim was a man who was illiterate, so he could not read. But when he came to faith, he, he got an audio scripture, and he began to share, and he began to evangelize. So here's this guy who is just a brand new baby Christian who can't read. He couldn't read the Bible for himself, and yet he's out with his audio Bible sharing the gospel and leading other people to faith. Well, what that did is it got him branded as a Christian, as a troublemaker, as an infidel, and he was a a simple day laborer. He would go with other men they would meet up in the center of the village in the morning, and anybody who had jobs to do would pick them up. You know, one or two or three, hey, come work for me today. I'll pay you at the end of the day. Well, as soon as Hasim got labeled as a Christian, as an infidel, nobody would choose him anymore for work. So his income, basically overnight, his income went to zero because nobody would hire him. Then his home was attacked because he was still evangelizing. He's inviting people to come into his home and hear more about Jesus. Well, if we destroy his home, then he won't be able to do that anymore. And yet he had this amazing sweet spirit of, you know, I'm just following Jesus. I'm just doing what I know to do. I'm I'm a brand new baby Christian. I've never been to seminary. I don't have that much, but the part I know— I'm being obedient to. Uh, my boss here at VOM talks about high knowledge, low obedience versus low knowledge, high obedience. We want to be high obedience Christians, and Hasim is an example of that. Mm, wow. Talk to me about North Korea. Uh, you have several stories about being in South Korea, but anyone who's even come close to North Korea, Todd, knows how 
almost incomprehensible the status is for Christians in that country. What are stories that come to your mind? You know, there was a lady that we met, Sister Troya, and her story is in the book. And I'll never forget her hands because uh, in the course of coming to faith in Christ, she had then been arrested and she was horribly tortured. And one of the things that the guards would do as she was in prison is, is there was a, a kind of a slot in the door of her prison cell. They would say, hold out your hands. She would put her hands through that slot and then they would beat her hands with iron pipes. And her hands were still you could tell they were never going to look normal. They, they were never going to be well from that kind of treatment. And she suffered incredibly and horribly in North Korean prisons. And, you know, we hear the stories of suffering, and she was still processing some of that. You know, there are stories in the book of those who, who have already forgiven their persecutors. They have come to the point of saying, I forgive you. I actually even pray God's blessings on you. Sister Choi was still working towards that point. She was still very angry at the people who had damaged her hands, the people who had locked her up, the people who had tortured her. But I think one of the important things, and I try to give some context for this in the book, for people to understand is the North Korean government is built as a religion. The Kim regime is a religion. The Kim family are thought to be divine beings. So if you come into the country and say, hey, I'm a Christian— it's not just a matter of, well, we don't believe that here, or even, hey, that's that's Western thought. That's, you know, we're North Koreans. We don't subscribe to that Western theology. It is treason. It undermines the foundation of the North Korean government. If Jesus is Lord, then Kim Jong-un is not Lord. And so that's why the North Koreans come after every single person. If you're thought to have a Bible, if you're thought to have talked to a Christian, when you go over to China and come back, they question you. Did you go to a church? Did anyone give you anything? Did you talk to any Christians? They cannot let Christianity come into the country because it is such a threat. And and they have clearly understood that. That's why you see the type of torture that Sister Troy went through. Wow. Let me go back to her life a little bit, Todd, because you write in the book that she was actually married to a high communist official. And that presumably one word and she could have been set free. But you talk about the fact that she was tortured and they went to her husband saying that if he would testify against his wife and admit her crime of having read a Bible, that she could come home and be reunited with him. What happened? That is true. And when they told her that, you can imagine how she felt. Your own husband has betrayed you. Your own husband is going to testify against you. When they got to the actual courtroom, though, he realized this was a lie. They, they weren't going to let her come home to him. And so he actually defended her in court, which I'm sure was an incredible encouragement to her. That first trial happened, and she actually was pronounced innocent. The judge said, hey, yeah, you haven't broken the law. You can go home. Well, the government leaders were not going to allow that to happen. So they said, oh, no, 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 we're going to have a retrial. This time, before the trial started, they beat her so badly that she could not speak when she was in the courtroom. The entire trial lasted less than an hour, and she was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Guilty, 15 years in prison. So even if you have a trial and it seems to go well, if the government doesn't like the result, they can instantly just completely cancel that and say, hey, let's have a new trial. You're guilty now. Wow. So, Todd, when you hear stories like this, and I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if some of our listeners didn't have the same response as well, 
How do you see our brothers and sisters who go through this handle the bitterness, handle the rage, handle the unforgiveness, or even retreat because following Jesus cost way more than they may have anticipated? You know, there are, I think, are different stages in that. And I typically, you know, by the time I'm getting there and I'm talking to them, they haven't backed down. They, they haven't walked away from their faith. Uh, but sometimes they are still trying to work through, you know, how do, how do you forgive this person? And, you know, you think about someone, I think of, you know, women who are arrested in Iran. One of the things they commonly face is sexual assault in the prison or by the guards or by other prisoners. How do you go through that and then forgive? You know, I, I think the Lord works differently in, in, in different cases. Uh, I talk in the book about two widows whose husbands were martyred in Turkey, and almost instantaneously God allowed them to forgive the men who had killed their husbands. In fact, the next day on national television, one of them echoed the words of Christ on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they didn't know what they were doing. So that happened sometimes instantaneously. And she said, I, I asked her, how did you do that? And she said, oh, that wasn't me. That was God. There's no way I could do that on my own. God allowed me to do that. In other cases, people that I've talked to, they're still trying to get there. They, they In some cases, they know I, I need to forgive this person. I'm trying to forgive them. I'm praying that God will empower me to forgive them. But the reality is the that power has to come from the Holy Spirit. It has to come from God. That's the only way we can do that. That's the only way we can set aside some of that offense and that hurt and that anger. But here's the other side of that coin. It is one of the greatest testimonies to the truth of the gospel. When someone has killed your family member and you say, I forgive them, I'm praying God's blessings on them, the rest of the world looks onto that and says, unless the gospel is true, that doesn't even make any sense. I can't even process that you could do that unless Jesus is real, unless the gospel is true, unless God has empowered you to do that. So it is an amazing testimony when our brothers and sisters get to that point of, of true forgiveness for their persecutors. We're visiting with Todd Nettleton, who has a brand new book out that follows the work that he's done with Voice of the Martyrs for over two decades. When Faith is Forbidden, 40 Days on the Front Lines with Persecuted Christians. Todd, I ask you this almost every time we get together, and that is if I was sitting next to you on one of these visits of someplace on planet Earth, and I had the very humbling privilege, you used that word earlier, I think it's spot on, the humbling privilege of hearing these men and women who said, yes, Lord, knowing what the cost might be, Oftentimes you are given the opportunity to ask them, how can we pray for you? What is the response you hear most often? One of the first requests that they have is that we pray for them. And it's not a request, and this is a sort of challenging thing to me, it's not a request that they won't suffer anymore. It's not a request that they won't be persecuted anymore or that you know their government will change hands and religious freedom will break out in their country. The request that they have is, will you pray for us that will be faithful to Christ in spite of the persecution, in spite of the suffering or the challenges that we have to go through. Pray for us that we'll be faithful. And, you know, I think that's an incredible request, not only for our brothers and sisters living in hostile and restricted nations, uh, but for ourselves as well. Lord, help us to be faithful, whatever may come. Mm. Wow. 
And that's another important takeaway for us as well. Todd, you have been doing this for over two decades, and you traveled to parts beyond on planet Earth, and you've had the opportunity to meet many people, most of whom, within the sound of our voices, we won't meet until we're in glory. But even after 20 years, and you've heard story after story after story, there may be repetitive themes, there may be um, slightly different circumstances, but basically the same causal reasons. It's either a totalitarian regime or it's an Islamic-dominated country where we see this kind of repression, oppression, and persecution on a regular basis. But even after all those years, because you have a very active prayer life and a relationship with the living God, is there a moment that you remember where you were traveling back home on that flight and you thought, I will never forget this one? You know, I went to Turkey seven weeks after three Christians were killed in the city of Malatya. And uh, through a series of, of circumstances, I, I came to believe that it wasn't just God wanted VOM to go and meet these widows and hear their stories. It was me personally. And we had an amazing visit in Turkey. I managed to meet both of the widows as well as the fiancé and the parents of the third man who were killed— just heard their stories. And, you know, the last widow that I was to meet when we first called that morning, she said, you know, I'm, I'm just too tired. I don't, I can't do it today. And it was my last day in the country. So I thought, oh, you know, I really wish this would have happened, but we've already had this great trip. I, I've met these other people. And so we went out to breakfast. I went out to breakfast with the pastor who was going to take me to meet her. And we had a nice breakfast. And towards the end of breakfast, his phone rang and he said, hallelujah. And I thought, well, that must be good news. And uh, he said, she said, go ahead and come for a few minutes. Uh, and so we went and I ended up spending eight hours in that home with that lady and her two kids. And long, long convoluted story, but they now actually live close to my in-laws uh, in Colorado, and those kids have kind of adopted my mother-in-law and father-in-law as their adopted grandparents. Uh, and so I, I've come to believe that, that that trip was actually more about connecting those two families together than it was about me being there or me hearing the stories. Uh, but it was very clearly, and, and you know, we don't see those things in real time. We see them in hindsight. But it was very clear that God was orchestrating every moment of that trip, every stop along the way, every day, every meeting, every conversation. And when you have a whole week where you just look back and think, wow, God's been amazing this week, uh, it makes you very excited. And and you said, is, is there a trip you'll never forget? I will never forget uh, that week in Turkey and, and meeting those people. Their, their wounds were so fresh. And yet they were so open about how God was carrying them through, how God was being faithful to them. Uh, and like I say, then to be able to connect them uh, with some new family members was just really an amazing blessing. Mm. And a treasure in your heart for the rest of your life. You know, Todd, you and I have conversations on a regular basis, and I, I want to thank you again, as I do every time, for the gift of your time and the stories that you tell us, and that perhaps we'll remember again the admonition to pray for those who've been led away in chains. And we'll remember again this remarkable reality that when one part of the body hurts, we all hurt. We should be grieving for our brothers and sisters in Eritrea and Bangladesh and China. But I have to tell you that there are also people within the sound of our voices when we have our conversations who say, it's a foreign country. 
They're giants in the land. I'm just a grasshopper. So I hear these stories and that's nice. I can pray, but I'll never meet them. I'm not sure I can cause much of a change. So thanks for the stories, but I feel very ineffectual in these reports. What would you say to that person? I would invite them to come with me for 40 days and let's sit down with some of these believers and let's hear their stories. I I genuinely believe that on day 41, if you spend the 40 days going through this book and meeting these Christians and hearing their stories, and and we've put together some kind of application to go with each story, like, hey, how, do, how does this play out in an American context? How does this play out where I'm not—I don't have a gun to my head? What, what's God trying to teach me? I genuinely believe on day 41, your faith is going to look a little different. You're, you're going to have more boldness and more courage and more strength, and you're going to say, hey— I need to go share the gospel with my neighbor. I need to stop worrying about what hardship might come my way and go boldly forward the way our brothers and sisters in hostile and restricted nations are doing. So that, that would be my answer is, hey, get a copy of the book, come along for 40 days, and see if on day 41 you still feel that way. Thank you again, Janet Parshall and the team at Moody Radio. They have allowed us to air an interview I did with Janet for her show, In the Market with Janet Parshall. I love highlighting the lessons that I have learned from persecuted believers around the world. Uh, And I'm so thankful that I could share these stories on Janet's program and with you this week here on Voice of the Martyrs Radio and in the brand new book, When Faith is Forbidden. I would love for you to have a copy of the book that Janet and I have been talking about. If you visit us at vomradio.net, we will give you links to order the book from VOM or to order from other retailers. It's available at Amazon. It's available wherever books are sold. Again, just come to our website. We'll give you a link at vomradio.net. And while you're there, I hope you will be sure to register for the Imprisoned for Christ virtual event, which is coming up on March the 5th. This is going to be an amazing, inspiring evening where you'll have the chance to hear from three former prisoners for Christ about their experiences in prison. You know, your church can also sign up as a host site for this event There's a link at vomradio.net, or you can just go to persecution.com slash event, persecution.com slash event. I hope you will be a part of this event. It is going to be incredibly inspiring, and I think even life-changing for many people to hear these firsthand stories of people in prison finding God faithful, even in in horrible and difficult circumstances. So I hope you'll be a part of the Imprison for Christ virtual event. One more thing before we go this week, I just want to let people know we are actually going to post a couple chapters of the audio version of When Faith is Forbidden on the podcast stream this week. So when you subscribe to the Voice of the Martyrs Radio podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, Or if you listen online at vomradio.net, 
Uh, next week, to celebrate the release on March the 2nd, we will post some chapters of the audiobook into the podcast stream so that you can take advantage of that. So you'll get a little bit more of a flavor of when faith is forbidden, what the book is about, what it's like. And also, if you like audiobooks, a taste of what the actual audiobook will sound like. So if you haven't already subscribed, be sure you subscribe to the Voice of the Martyrs Radio podcast wherever you listen to podcasts or visit us online at vomradio.net. You know, it's very difficult for us here in the United States to, to understand what is happening in Cuba. The government restrictions on the Cuban side, on the U.S. side, keep our two countries apart. Next week, though, we're going to get to know a couple from Cuba. They love Jesus. They are involved in spreading the gospel inside Cuba. They're involved in supporting the church and especially church leaders and pastors who face constant harassment and persecution inside Cuba. I know you'll be inspired by their story, so I hope you'll be back with us next week right here on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network.